You may be seated. Does anybody notice anything different? See, when we first uh, received this pulpit, we realized that those ministers who are 5'6", five, 5'8", five, in height would have challenges, so a platform was built. But that platform will hinder our speaker today because the Lord has afflicted John with great height. <laughs> And poor eyesight. So that combination makes his notes on the pulpit harder to read. Uh, I'll come alongside here. Uh, John Dunning, hey John, is our guest speaker today. And John came into the Heartland Presbytery just a year after I did in 2003. And he served at Oak Hills Presbyterian Church for 10 years until the Lord called him out to Manhattan, Kansas with our youth pastor, um, Brian Huff. And Brian and John worked as a team, both in planting Manhattan Presbyterian Church and John's primary focus, working with Reformed University Fellowship at the campus of Kansas State University. And here, there he's been laboring for the last couple of years with many of our young people and young people from our other churches, and then reaching out to the lost and bringing young men and women into to fellowship with other believers. So we're excited to have John here, and he's going to open the Word of God to us. So John, come and open God's Word. There we go. There we go. Awesome. It's good to be with you this morning. It's my privilege, um, beloved, to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, as Pastor Nathan said, uh, we've been, this is our third year on campus at Kansas State University, having a great time learning a lot and learning a lot about college life and college ministry. RUF sends ministers, ordained ministers, to the college campus for three basic reasons. One, because we believe that the gospel is true that God's Word is true and that it speaks into every area of our life, every corner of existence, and answers the biggest questions that we could ask it. Second reason that we send, uh, denomination sends ordained campus ministers to college campuses is because we believe that the university is a real place where there are real questions being asked and real decisions are being made that will affect young people for the rest of their lives. And the third reason we do this is because we believe that God has called the church and equipped the church to be the primary instrument of the spread of the gospel around the world. And so that's why I'm on the college campus, to do just that. We say it's a privilege to be able to, to be a part of the shepherding process of many of your young people. Um, I, I love getting to hang out with them and letting them, and I'm thankful that they let me to be a part of their lives. If you want more information about RUF, I've got a table set up in that corner of the Narthex area there. And in particular, if you're the type of person that something like this will help, will help there's a, there are little cards on the table that look like this. There's not a ton of information on there, but it's simply a way, something you can stick in your Bible or stick on your fridge. Again, if that helps you, um, please take one and do that. We'd love to have you be praying with us and for us. If you would like to get some more information from me, there's a place where you can sign up for your email address. We'd love to have you considering partnering with us in this ministry. We're thankful for the way that this church has supported us so faithfully and really allowed us to be there. God has provided richly for us. If you've got a Bible nearby, let me encourage you to open it up to Luke chapter 3. We're going to be considering Luke 3 this morning, specifically verses 15 through 22. As you turn there, I want you to be thinking, and the question I want you to bring to the text this morning is, what is it that you're waiting for? What is it that you're waiting for? I find it curious that in 
the world of instant technology, of really instant gratification, where movies are at fingertips, books are at my fingertips, people are always at my fingertips, that I still find myself constantly waiting, waiting for a text, waiting for a Facebook like, a Snapchat, whatever. That it's that even waiting 10 minutes for some sort of response from another human being through email or through cell phone seems to be like an eternity. It seems like most of my life is spent waiting for something. It's what I see in our students, constantly waiting, waiting, and waiting. And I ask you this morning, what is it that you're waiting for? I ask you that because as we turn to Luke 3, we find the people of God are waiting. They're waiting in particular from a vo- for a voice from God himself. You see, they know the stories of their scriptures, of their ancestors, the f- to whom God spoke through his ministers, the prophets, that the, the prophet would open his mouth and say, thus says the Lord, and what would come out would be the very words of God being spoken to his people. But as the New Testament begins, we find God's people waiting because the prophets have been silent for hundreds of years. They're waiting to hear from their God, wondering what will happen next. But then early in Luke 3, we read Luke tell us that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The word of God came to John just like the word of God had come to prophets of long ago. But here we find John out in the wilderness, a little bit of a freak, if you will, preaching, and the crowds coming out to him. And John's message can be summarized with one word, repent. You see, John was called by God to prepare God's people for the coming of the Lord in Jesus. And his message was, you're not ready. His message was, Jesus is coming. And we'll talk about the message of Jesus specifically in a moment. But John spoke against hypocrisy. He spoke against the people's lack of mercy. And he spoke against the people's sense of injustice. And he said, God is calling you to seek change in your life. And for one reason or another, the crowds flocked, even walking for days to come to this man in the wilderness who was proclaiming the message of God. And so we pick up the story in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us as we approach God's word today. Father in heaven, by your Son and through your Spirit, we pray that you would send out your light and your truth, that they would lead us to your holy place, to that place where you dwell. Jesus, as we approach your word, we ask by your Spirit that you would change us, that you would embed this word deeply into our hearts and in our lives. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. A few years ago, a writer by the name of Mandy Lynn Catron 
was in the midst of a painful breakup from a 10-year relationship. Her world was crumbling apart. She didn't know what to do with herself. The man that she had loved, that she thought she would spend the rest of her life with, was no longer a part of her life. And in response, she turned to science as a way of trying to better understand this crazy thing called love. What she, one of the things she discovered was a psychological study done in the late 90s actually designed to study relationships among college students. But it was a study in which two strangers were brought together in a lab set, laboratory setting. They sat across the table from each other, and they were each given the same list of 36 questions. And their instruction was to look at each other in the eye and to, to sit across the table from one, to one another and ask one another those list of questions. The questions were structured about things like, what are your hopes and dreams? What, what, are your, what are your biggest memories from your childhood? That kind of thing. But they increased in their intimacy as they went down the list. And after the period of time in which the witch was set and they finished the list of 36 questions, the instruction was to stare into one another's eyes for four minutes without speaking and without looking away. What fascinated Ms. Catron when she discovered this study is that one of the couples that was paired up actually ended up getting married as a result of this little experiment. And she thought, this might be what I'm looking for, the solution to figuring out my love crisis. And so she found a friend of her, or an acquaintance of hers, a man that she had known for some time but not well, and she said, let's try this. And so they got together and they did the experiment in a bar late one Friday night. And you know what? They fell in love. And she decided, because she's a writer, she decided to write about it. So she posted it on her blog some months later on a Friday evening. By the next Sunday, the blog views were in the thousands, and she had received a phone call from the Today Show asking for an interview. Instant success. Her article had gone viral, as they say. And as publicity increased, as she went, she actually traveled around the country, has done some speaking on this, and she received a, a number of emails from, the, from her article being published initially, she commented that the question she receives more than any other is this, are you still together? In other words, did it work? You see, what she's finding is that people wanted more than simply to fall in love. They wanted to know that it would last, that real love was a possibility, that sustainable love was a real thing. In fact, the article that she wrote was titled, Falling in Love is the Easy Part, realizing that the hard part is to stay together. But in reflecting on this some months later, earlier this past year, what she said was this, What I want from love is a guarantee not just that I am loved today and that I will be loved tomorrow, but that I will continue to be loved by the person I love indefinitely. Let me read that again. What I want from love is a guarantee. Not just that I am loved today and that I will be loved tomorrow, but that I will continue to be loved by the person I love indefinitely. That's what we're looking for, isn't it? what young people are looking for, what those more aged among us are looking for. We're waiting for this kind of indefinite, unending sense of belonging, which we know is far exceeds looking for romantic love or love in the moment. We're looking for belonging. We're looking for acceptance. We want to know that we're okay. To put it a little more directly, we're waiting for a voice to tell us in an authoritative kind of way that it will be okay and that we're loved, and that we're accepted. In short, whether we know it or not, what that means we're waiting for is we're waiting for that voice to come from God himself. In Luke chapter 3, we see God speaking to his people. 
we hear God speaking, and the question on our minds is, what does he say, and what does it have to do with us? As we, as we begin to hear God speak in Luke chapter 3, we, we first hear him through the voice of the prophet John, as we've said, the one to whom the word of God has appeared. And if we look at verse 15, we read that as the, that the, as the people were in no expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered. The prophet began to answer because the people approach John wondering if he's the one they've been waiting for. In a sense, wondering, is he the mentor that we need to take the next step in our careers, in our lives? Is he the expert that will tell us what to do? And John's response, of course, is really fascinating. Notice what he says, again, looking at verse, in the second part of verse 16, or in verse 16, it says, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John is saying, I'm not the one. I'm not the one you're waiting for. He will come later. And with the imagery of not, not being able to unstrap the tie, the, untie the strap of his sandals, what John is saying is a person will come in human form. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy enough to do the lowliest job, the smallest, worst job that anybody could imagine, and that's to untie another man's shoes. I'm not even worthy to do that. John is saying a person is coming, the one you've been waiting for. Now, to remember... John has attracted a crowd. He's got people listening to him. He's got people responding to his message with baptism, responding to his message by seeking to change their lives. And yet John's message is there's someone else coming. I liken this to all of us showing up at the next great Apple event, waiting to hear about the the iPhone 8 or whatever it's going to be, the new product that's going to be unleashed on the world that we all can't live without. And the first words out of the presenter at the Apple conference is going to be, Wait till the next Android phone comes out. It's going to change your life. Give it six months. It'll be here and it'll change your life. That's the message that John is saying. John is saying, it's not about me. I'm here to speak of another, another person, another individual who will come and indeed will change your lives and will change the world. But notice how he goes on in 16 and 17. Notice the the details of what this one will do. John says first at the end of verse 16, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is the language of salvation. This is the language of God showing up, of entering into his world, bringing salvation, of bringing the change that the people so often, so often long for and so much seek, that salvation itself will appear because the one coming will baptize with the Holy Spirit and bring lasting true change. But notice where he continues in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's the imagery of a farmer gathering his wheat to get rid of the part that he doesn't want by tossing it up into the air and the wind will blow it away. And the, the, the wheat, the, the part that will actually use, my grain science people tell me, will fall to the ground because it's heavier. It's the imagery of judgment. It's the imagery of God saying, some of this will last and some of it will not. Some of it is mine and some of it is not. Jesus is coming to proclaim the message of salvation, but also the message of judgment. That's John's message for the people who would hear. Jesus is coming, bringing salvation and judgment. For you and me, 2,000 years later, the message is similar but it changes in one crucial piece, and it is this. Jesus has come, and he has brought salvation, and he indeed will bring judgment. 
And the impact of that, one of the impacts of that for you and for me is to face the fact that because of this reality, because Jesus has entered the world, he has brought the message of salvation and he will bring judgment, we can't ignore him. You see, Jesus is not a simple upgrade to your way of life that you've already established that is comfortable for you. Jesus is not simply here to justify your political decisions, your spending habits. He's not here to justify the way you treat your parents, the way you treat your children. Jesus is here to change everything about your life. It's the message of salvation, which is not simply get in and you're done and you're good to go, but get in and he will be changing you and shaping you the way that you live your life, the way that you approach everything. Jesus is not simply an upgrade. He's not something that you can put on a shelf and take down once a week, twice a week, once a month, twice a month, once a year. Jesus is something altogether different, bringing salvation and promising judgment. It's a daily question for us. How do we respond to Jesus? Whether we face it or not, how do you respond to him? But notice, after hearing the voice of the prophet and the voice of God through the prophet, we're we're given a bit of an interlude in verses 19 and 20 because Luke wants us to know that John is going to, we're not going to see him very much and he wants to tell us why why that's going to be the case. So look at verse 19. We read there that so with many other exhortations he preached good news to the people and this is what's key, and that was verse 18, I'm sorry, but verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, who, has been repro- who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. John goes away because he gets locked up in prison eventually. What's the voice of Herod saying to us? I think there's two things that we see here. The, f- the first thing that Herod says regarding John is, don't mess with my way of life. You don't have a right to tell me what to do, John. You see, Herod had had his, brother, his own brother killed so that he could marry his own brother's wife. He lusted after her and he wanted her. And he was the provincial governor of the time, set in power by Rome itself. And so he could do what he wanted to do, include that. And that matches up with what we know about this character from the rest of history. His message, though, is his voice is saying, don't mess with my way of life. I want her, I will have her, and no one can stop me. And John had the nerve by the power of God to speak truth to someone in power. And he got thrown in jail, which tells us Herod's other message. You see, Herod is saying, don't mess with my life, but Herod is also saying to John, I'll show you, John, I'm in charge. You're not in charge. You can preach to me all you want, John, but at the end of the day, you're in jail and I'm not. That's Herod's message. Don't mess with my way of life and I'm in charge. A few weeks ago, I had a conversation with one of our students who's been leading a Bible study among his fraternity brothers, many of whom were church growers as kids but don't profess faith now. But as he's leading this Bible study through the Sermon on the Mount, he's trying to have conversations with these guys in an individual way to follow up with them to see if they're understanding what they're, what's being said, to see if they have any questions. And he's, he's amazingly gracious and gentle about his approach to them, and yet he wants to know that there are real things at stake. But a couple weeks ago, he's relaying to me a conversation he had with one of these guys where he's following up with them. And this is a guy that had had, had some insightful response in the Bible study, was participating in the, discu- in the discussion, and really seemed to be enjoying it. And as my friend began to, my student began to ask this guy questions, he quickly stopped him and said, just so you know, I'm not going to stop drinking for four years until I'm done with college, and then I'll, re- then I'll live the rest of my life a different way. And the message was simply this, don't tell me what to do. He understood that there are implications to believing in Jesus, 
And then the, the, part of the implications would mess with his social life and how he defines what is fun and how he wants to live his life. The message of Jesus counters that directly. But beloved, this is our challenge. This is your challenge because this is my challenge. Because sin, sin is a part of our lives. It lingers even in the most faithful among us. We know the tension that exists that says, I want to do things my way. Nobody can tell me what to do. I want to be in charge of my own life and the decisions that I make. You see, our challenge is not one merely of ignorance. It's not merely one of inability. It's not as if we just need a little extra help to do a little bit better of a job or we need a little bit more information to make sure that we understand how, how life really works. Because sin is not simply a lack of information or a lack of ability. Sin is, a, sin is an issue of rebellion against God who is the authority, who is the one is in charge. And that indeed is our biggest problem because we don't want him to be in charge. And even the most faithful among us know that struggle and know that tension of striving to live your life for yourself instead of living in the submission for which Jesus' blood died. Jesus died and shed his blood for us. But it's in the midst of this world where that is the dominating voice that God continues to speak through his word. But notice where the passage lands because here we hear God speak directly. Notice in verse 21, again, it says that all the people were, be, were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And finally, we hear God speak fully, and the people hear God speak. But even before that, they see the heavens open. And it tells us that the Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove. That there's something to see there. And this is God saying, I am here. I am present. You see, the earth is not the place where God is not. From the beginning of creation, we read in Genesis 1, in the first verses of Genesis 1, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That God is and has always been present here. The sending of the dove is not God showing up for the first time. But it's God saying, I am here. And more than that, it's God saying, this, this is the one you've been waiting for. This is the one. Doing campus ministry, I, I often get an email or a text from maybe some of, some of you even at times saying, my son, my daughter, my niece, my nephew, my grandson is coming to K-State. Would you make contact with him? And I love getting those emails. And it's always fascinating, even if a student himself or herself is the one who first contacts me through some sort of technology like that, it's always fascinating to meet them for the very first time. Because, of course, I'm getting a thought in my head of, oh, this is this person that I think I remember meeting this one time. Or I met this person's relative, and so I'm wondering if they're going to be like that or not. But when they actually show up and you realize, oh, it's you. Like this happened this summer at orientation. It's you. You're the one we've been emailing back and forth, and I didn't have a face to go with the name. But now I do. It's you. That's the picture of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus. Because John had said, one is coming after me. He's the one you're to look for. He's the one you're to pay attention to. And it's God himself who brings the authentication to Jesus to say, this is the one about whom John spoke. And here is my spirit setting on him for that. But notice the words of God that show up in verse 22. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. God is not simply identifying Jesus as the one, but God is making a statement about his very son to say, this is the one. This one is my son. 
For, for years, scholars have, pointed, have made the connection between these words and the words of God to Abraham in Genesis 22 when God had called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac um, for him. And, at that, and early in that story, God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him. Your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And here we see God saying, not take your son, your son, and your son, but I'm giving you my son. This is my son, my only son, whom I love. You see, this is the guarantee of love that we long to hear. These are the words that we long for, that we work for, and that we fight for. To hear, I delight in you, I love you, in a way that is lasting, that is enduring, and that will not ever go away. This is the settled resting place of acceptance of belong and belonging. This is the place of being known and being valued. What Luke wants us to know as he recounts this story for us, what God himself wants us to know, is that these words are ours through faith in the Lord Jesus. The rest of the New Testament spends much time telling us that reality, that we can know the delight of the Father by knowing the Son and knowing the Father's delight in His own Son. Think about Romans 5. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God sent His Son and poured out His love upon His own Son, by faith in Him, we can know that delight. And the beauty of God doing it this way is that it sets us free from thinking many things, but it sets us free from the trap of, on the one hand of saying, it's all on me to earn and to work, to work my salvation out, to figure this out. It's all on me to make sure I perform, because if I don't perform, I lose His love. But the beautiful thing is the other side of that equation also falls short as well and is conquered by this reality. Because not only is it not up to us to do this, but it also says the Father's delight is on His Son Jesus, which means it's okay for us to realize that the Father is not always delighted with the way that we live our lives. And the Father is not always pleased with the decisions we make and the things that we do and the way that we treat people, even loved ones, or the way that we've been treated. But yet, that doesn't take away the Father's delight in Jesus, which is ours through faith in Jesus. It removes, though, our performance and the pressure put on us to make sure that we can accomplish the lasting love ourselves. It sets us free. It truly sets us free. The final question, then, is why does this work? Look back with me at verse 21. Notice the scene. Luke gives us just a sentence here, part of a sentence really, to describe what's happening. He says that when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, all the people, you could almost imagine it, were lining up to seek John, to seek baptism. They heard him preach, and they knew that this was part of the response. We need to be a changed people, they were thinking. But what Luke tells us is that Jesus got in that same line and was baptized. That Jesus himself said, I'm one of them, I'm with them, and I'm here to be baptized. It's Jesus identifying with us. It's Jesus taking on something that we could not accomplish ourselves. C.S. Lewis says it this way in commenting on this passage. He says that only a bad person needs to repent 
In other words, only someone who is truly bad needs to change, but only a good person can repent perfectly. What that means for you and me is that even our attempts to say we're sorry, even our attempts to turn from the sinful practices of our lives and the sinful habits and the sinful ways of thinking and living, even our attempts to make change in our lives are flawed. And even though we are the ones who desperately need change, we are not perfect enough to change perfectly. The beauty of the gospel is Jesus himself repented for us. Because Jesus himself got in line to be baptized, accepting this baptism that he didn't need to receive, and yet that he chose to receive to say, I am one of them. I am one of you. That's how this works. That's how we know the salvation of Jesus. That's how we know the hope of the delight of the Father in his Son. Because Jesus, not because we chose him, but because Jesus first identified with us and said, I am with them. And so through John, we hear the voice of God in salvation and of judgment and the promise of the coming of Jesus. And the world around us says, don't mess with my way of life and I'm in charge. But in the midst of that, God still speaks with an even greater voice to say, I am here, I am present. And to say, I delight in my son. This is my son, the the one whom I love. It's what we fight for. It's what we long for. It's what we work for. It's what many of us maybe have even this morning have given up trying to think that is even a possibility. And yet the hope that you have, that we all have, is that in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our battle with sin, in the midst of our struggle, there is still hope because of Jesus. There is still hope because God has spoken to him and said, my delight is in him, the one I love. Let's pray. Father, God of all mercies, by your grace you know our frame, you know that we are but dust, and yet you have chosen to speak and to preserve your word so that we might have it in our own language even this morning. Pray that you would, you would embed this deeply in our hearts and in our lives and that we might be changed people by your grace. In your name we pray, amen.